listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Josh Bishop. I am a documentary filmmaker. You may know me from my films Made in Japan and The Dwarvenaut. Uh, currently, I'm working on a music video for Easy Eye Sound, Dan, Dan Auerbach's music label, and a TV pilot. Josh Bishop, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Anytime, anytime. Truly excited to have you on. So much to dig into uh, around your life in the creative arts and in film and beyond. Uh, To give the audience a deeper sense of who you are, I'm going to read a little bit from your bio. And as I always say, this is the internet. So when I get done, feel free to jump in and say uh, A, B, C, or D was, was inaccurate or that was spot on. Josh Bishop is an award winning director specializing in feature documentaries branded content and music videos. Josh's first documentary feature made in Japan, currently streaming on Amazon Prime, premiered at South by Southwest in 2015 in Austin, Texas. The film boasts Morgan Spurlock as executive producer and Elijah Wood as both executive producer and narrator. His second documentary feature, The Dwarvenaut, premiered at South by Southwest in 2016 and is currently available on most VOD platforms after almost three years on Netflix. After almost two decades of life in New York City, Josh relocated to Nashville with his family in 2018, where he continues to create documentaries, branded content, and music videos. While staying safe from the pandemic, Josh and his wife, Katura teamed up to officially form a window in a tunnel. Josh's most recent work includes multiple music videos for Dan Arbach's Easy Eye Sound recording label and an array of videos for an exciting selection of emerging Nashville talent. That sounds like a lot of stuff going on and a lot of awesomeness. Does that sound about right, Josh? Yeah, that sounds about right. That that, that definitely does sum up uh, who I am and <laughs> <Yes. laughs> what I have going on <laughs> So much to dig into there. Uh, But first, I want to start with something that might actually go nowhere, which is why do they call you the Bish and who started calling you that and why? That's hilarious. Uh, That that actually makes me smile. Um, So I have a a, back in New York, an old friend who passed away. Um, His name was Jim Starachi, and he was a real the old, old school New Yorker from Queens. And uh, he was like an, an animator. He was a stop motion animator, but he was also, he also fronted this band, uh, Puny Human, mm-hmm. which was like a stoner rock band. Um, but he'd been around for a long time. And I was brought into contact with him to work on a film together. Um, we made a, a stop motion animated film together. And, uh, Everyone that knew him got a nickname, so he used to call me the Bish, and so and we have a pretty we have a pretty big uh, 
group of friends in New York. Like a lot of people knew him and loved him very much. And uh, that's so funny that you're asking me about that, man. Because he's like one of these people that like like he died and everyone um, just broke everyone's heart. But I hear his voice a lot, you know. Because I, I grew, I, I I learned a lot from that guy. He he was quite a bit older than me. I knew him in my twenties mostly. And at the time, I don't think I understood like how uh, just how much of an artist he truly was. I was really just kind of dead set on working on my own film with him. Um, and it wasn't until he died. I mean, I, I, I truly love the man, but it wasn't until he died that I, I really kind of started to understand like the gift that he had given me by working with me and uh, how much I'd learned from him, you know? So by you asking me that, I, I, I can't even, I can't help but think that he's like saying hi, you know? <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. That's, yeah. that's beautiful. I love that. And uh, it, it is funny because uh, when you lose someone and, and then, you know, any, Anyone that loses someone young, for example, it stays with you for life. And, and it's funny how those people sort of reach down from the heavens and remind you that they were there in your life from time to time like this. So I love yeah. that. It happens to me all the time. So I'm glad I could be the messenger for, uh, for his, his reach down from the heavens to you right now. Well, thank you, man. And I say that like, I believe that stuff, you know, I mean, I'm not I'm not uh, by any means a religious person, but I'm definitely uh, I have certain spiritual beliefs. And, and I think, um, you know, I feel I feel creative energy around me from other sources quite often, you know, and definitely from Jim. Jim's his name's Jim. Jim Sirachi. Hmm. He um, he was in a, uh, he was in another band called Norman Bates and the Showerheads, which any any <laughs> punk rocker from 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 Queens from the eighties knows. The eighties and nineties will know Norman Bates and the Showerheads. He was he was Jim Starachi literally auditioned for the Ramones when they were when they were <laughs> looking for. Uh, <laughs> Uh, like I think I don't know who it was that it, that was no longer there, but they needed they needed a bass player, and Jim auditioned, and he it was funny. He told me the story went like this: the guy uh, he calls up to make the uh, to make the appointment, and uh, someone answers. It's not one of their moans; it's their manager or something like that. And he goes, "Yeah, so uh, what's your name?" And then uh, Jim goes, uh, "Jim," and then he heard Marky Ramone off to the side go, "Huh." Jimmy Ramone. Yeah, that could work. (laughs) 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 And he said, he said he went and auditioned for the Ramones and he said it was really, it went really well, but the, the, the gig ended up going to, to, to someone else. But, uh, it was like, he, he was like that kind of guy. He had those kinds of New York, like old school New York punk rock stories. You know, he was as authentic as it could they just those kinds of people aren't really around anymore you know so that's why it was such a gift to know that guy you know yeah for for all the accolades a person can have in their life the ones we remember the people who touch us with their great stories and experiences that they were brave enough to embark upon right yeah. they, they can bring us and, and that that's a nice segue in, into the next thing I want to ask you because you've lived your life by a credo, if you, if you will, which is films are like windows that give us a glance outside of the tunnel of life. 
And I think about the window in that tunnel that you talk about when you tell me a story like that about Jim Starachi, where he's living this experience and he's giving you a little bit of a window so you can look at the movie that, that was his life where he was the ultimate protagonist and looking uh, back and thinking about when you sort of had this epiphany about the window in the tunnel, can you break this down a little bit for us? And, and what, what was your, you know, what was your frame of, of heart and mind when, when this came to you? And, uh, I remember, and, and can I, you break it down a little bit for us? Yeah, man. Um, I remember exactly where I was. I, I um, when I was 22, I moved to New York city from Belgium. Like I'm American, but I grew up in Europe. And, um, I, uh, came back to the United States with the goal of becoming, making films. And, and I knew that I kind of, uh, did not want to work within the Hollywood system. And that I, I, I definitely was more aligned with, uh, you know, the independent, you know, Art artists, uh, you know, film for film for art as opposed to film for commerce, mm-hmm. and I, I, I just I kind of always had that like alternative mind, and I uh, remembered that uh, you know Spielberg is very different with very different sensibilities than myself, and don't don't worry, I'm not comparing myself to Steven Spielberg. I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, he had uh, created his own little film entity when he was a kid called Amblin. And, and I, uh, I just remember thinking like, well, I should create my own entity for the work that I'm going to do. And it just, I don't know, I don't know how that saying came to me, a window in a tunnel, but it did. And then I just, I kind of have always, from that point on, I've always, um, used that, as my, my, my entity, even, even though, even before, like now I actually have an official production company together with my wife, but a window in a tunnel has always been like my, uh, my Amblin entertainment. You know, it's been the thing that I, I came up with it when I was, man, I'm 40, I'll be 42 in August. I came up with that name 40, 20 years ago, like when I was 22 years old and it just stuck. Um, and yeah, you know, like I, I have these memories of Unfortunately, I don't, I don't. It doesn't happen as as often anymore. But um, just being at seeing a film and being in such like complete and total awe, like a powerful one. You know, if you saw the right one, mm-hmm. a, a powerful film, and like not under like just just how how did that happen? Like how how did this person this this the, where did this vision come from? And and, and 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 it was like being able to look through a window into 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 you know outside of my own thing and just like for that hour and a half being given a glance at at uh at you know some stroke of genius you know what I mean and I, I guess that that's kind of like what um where that came from again I'm not trying to say that the things that I do I I don't consider myself a genius by any means but 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 uh just the, the ability to look outside of your own kind of little thing and into something else is, I guess, what a window in a tunnel kind of has always meant for me, you know? You mentioned you knew you didn't want to work in the Hollywood system. That's a pretty bold thing to know at the age of 22. Most filmmakers at 22, that's all they're trying to do. So 
was there something that happened, some, something that hit you, some experience you had, something you witnessed that turned you off from Hollywood young? Uh, yes. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. Um, well, first of all, let me say this. First of all, I, um, have always been from the time I was a, a kid, like I, I started listening to the punk rock and, and, you know, kind of alternative, I kind of had alternative sensibilities, uh, from a very young age. Uh, so I've always been very much kind of attracted to, uh, the, 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 the anti-establishment thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was, um, 19, uh, I have a cousin, Chris, who, uh, is a stunt guy. Uh, he doesn't do stunts anymore, but, um, he was a stunt guy, um, and he worked on a lot of major Hollywood blockbusters. And um, my mom had heard from him, excuse me, he had heard from my mom that I was looking to get into film. So he invited me out to L.A. to work with him for a summer. And this was like in 99. And he was working on Pearl Harbor, that Michael Bay movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, I worked with him on, on, on just, we did, I just did like two days on that with him. Um, and they, the film hadn't even been cast yet. It was literally Michael Bay was shooting stunt tests out on Long Beach and it was nothing but stunts and it was like incredible, but I kind of, I, that summer I hung out with my, my cousin and his, all of his stunt buddies and, and was, I mean, I'm very, I'm very grateful that I had those experiences, but, um, I just, I just knew like that kind of cutthroat. Uh, it just seemed to me that those those movies were not. I, I was, I, I was not wanting to get into the film business to make. I wanted to get into the film business to make a living, but I didn't want to get into the film business to make Michael Bay movies. I wanted to get into the film business to make my my work, my stuff. You know, to to, mm-hmm. to learn how to get that done. And um, I think I was young and. Uh, stupid enough to <laughs> to when I finally did uh I just dove straight in and I was like you know it's come hell or high water that's what's going to happen you know yeah absolutely um, I was able to I have been able to in my life um maintain uh I've never had another job like I've always worked in the film business um from my, my entire adult life and I don't when I look back at things now I'm like I don't know how the hell I pulled this off but Somehow I have, um, knock on wood, you know? Yeah. You're, you're, you're living the ideal life according to creatives. Uh, the, the many people know this, if they've been listening to this podcast since day one, but for you, you may not know, but this podcast got started by me going around and, and my partner, Nick going around and asking people in the creative film world, Hey, what does it mean to make it? <laughs> what does it mean to me? And we, we just had a handheld recorder, Josh, at the time. So what does it mean to make it? What does it mean to you to make it? And people would say almost every time, well, I just want to pay my bills doing, doing art. And I just want to pay my bills doing art. And we could be cynical about it and say, well, we don't believe you. We, th- <laughs> we think you're giving us the answer you, you're supposed to give us. And really, you want to be rich and famous and all that stuff. And I think to some people we've seen, that's that's definitely the case. They, they, they don't just want to pay their bills doing their art. They want so much more. And that's fine. No judgment. But, you know, what you just described is what everyone says they want, Josh. 
Yeah, it, 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 it's, I don't know, I, it's like a, um, it's a blessing and a curse, because I, I knew from the time, I mean, I always, well, I play guitar too, and I, mm-hmm. I when I was a kid, it was like, I'm going to be a rock and roll guitar player, and and I, I that was just going to happen, that's just the thing that I was going to do, like, I couldn't, I couldn't actually see anything else happening for me. And then I saw Down by Law, Jim Jarmusch's uh, Down by Law, mm-hmm. and everything kind of saw that movie, and I was like, "Wow, man! That but that was that was rock and roll." And I was I was sixteen, and I was kind of I was always I was that kid that was always picking apart the movie. Yeah, <laughs> and, and always, like like you know you'd be with friends and they were enjoying the film, but I was I was always yeah. But didn't you see that mistake or didn't you? You know, I I would have I would have totally done it this way, and I and I'd always kind of had thoughts about what it would be like to make films, but I'd never even I didn't know about this other way. I just thought that filmmaking meant millions and millions and millions of dollars and Hollywood, and it was either that or at, you know at that age it was like either that or really boring French movies, which no one wanted to watch. Like that was my perception of of, of films, right? And I didn't know that there was this. Yeah, but there's also this other thing going on where it's all the people are almost like auteurs. It's like, you know, and when I saw when I became aware of movies like like Down by Law and uh, David Lynch stuff and, um, you know, Herzog and, 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 and uh, you know, and then I did later on, uh, you know, kind of start to understand the French New Wave. And, and then I got into all these Japanese movies and it, like I just became obsessed and um, somewhere, so I guess when I was like sixteen or seventeen, I, I decided like I am. This is this is what I'm going to do. And there's no and there's there's no one that can tell me otherwise. And um, I left Europe. I came back to the states, and uh, I just started, man. Um, right, because earlier oh, I started. I started PAing on commercial. I literally just started doing anything that I could. I mean, I did have a little bit of PA experience uh, after I, I worked with my cousin in in, in LA that year. I, I flew back to Belgium and uh, I lived in Belgium for like another two years. And I got into their film industry and I, I worked there for a little bit. And then I just decided it was time to come back to the United States. I, I'd been gone for almost eleven years, and I knew I didn't want to go to LA, and so I just I went to New York and. Um, I just dove straight in, you know? Yeah, I, I love that. And so you were around, because you mentioned growing up, being American, but growing up in Europe and, you know, I believe you speak Dutch and French yeah. and Japanese fluently. Well, I don't speak Japanese fluently. I do speak quite a bit of Japanese, but I, I speak Dutch fluently. Yeah. Got it. Got it. What I do, uh, speak, I do speak some Japanese, though. <laughs> yeah. And, and then French, you speak French as well? I, I have like a, uh, I mean, I can kind of get by in French because if you grow up in Belgium, you have to, um, I mean, you're expected to, uh, it's mandatory at school, you know what I mean? And I, I got to say, if I would have stayed for like another year, mm-hmm. I probably would have become fluent because I was work like I said, I was working in the film business there and the film business there is, is bilingual. So oh, got it. I would end up on film sets where like no one spoke Dutch um, and I would have to speak French. But it, I was I was I was at the point to where I, I probably if I would have stayed for another year, my French would have gotten a lot better. But I, I, to answer your question, 
I can read and write a lot of French. I can I can hold my own in a conversation, but by no means am I fluent. Got it. Got it. But it's 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 a unique triad of languages. <laughs> All the same. I, I, first thing I thought was, I wonder if he's ever written a song in Japanese before. Uh, <laughs> no. But, uh, well, I thought of that right after I watched uh, Made in Japan, which we're going to talk about here in, oh, cool. in a little bit. Uh, you did move around. I think the audience would kill me if I didn't ask why you why you moved around Europe so much. So when I was um, when I was uh, a kid, my mom married uh, a man from from Holland. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they got married and then uh, we moved to Rotterdam and that, that, that didn't last. Um, and my mom is a, a pianist mm -hmm. by trade. And she got a playing job at the Antwerp Hilton in Belgium. And we moved to Belgium. And uh, she's, she didn't, we, we had gotten citizenship, like, a, well, at the time, like a, a green card or whatever. I don't know what their version of a green card is, but we, we were allowed to stay there. Um, and uh, I lived in, I lived in, see, I lived in Holland from 91 until 90 the very end of 93 and then or it might have actually already been 94 and then i lived in belgium from 94 until uh the very end of 2001 got it, got um, it. so my teenage years you know were, were really spent in europe you were 15 when you began studying audiovisual communications technology sounds like the moment happened for you in film a little bit after that, around 16 or 17. I was, I was older than that. Um, I went to a, um, to an art high school in Belgium. In Europe, they do this thing where they specialize in high school. Okay, um, that's interesting. Much, yeah. <laughs> it's much more like it's, it, it, it's much more specialized over there at a younger age. And I, um, I was, a, I was a total fuck up in, in school. And then my mom, uh, got me into this art pro at, she was like well what if you went to this art school so when i was 16 i uh went to this art school and then i had to do um at first i was doing like sculpting and painting and uh you know that kind of thing you know sketching uh i had a, i was heavy on just straight up art and then uh the last two years of that school you could choose an audiovisual program or photography and um, I, I, I so it, it just clicked. Like I saw, like I, like I said, I saw those movies, and I was like, man, I don't know what it is, but I want to do that program, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so yeah, so I, I kind of had. It, it's almost like the it was almost like the equivalent of like a like an associate's degree when I got done with that school because I I had had oh and oh oh. Mind you, I also failed a year, <laughs> so I got three years of, of 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 that education. Um, yeah. So it was, and I, I didn't fail any of my any of my film stuff. I failed like it's a very um, it's a very strict system over there, and I think I screwed up uh, on my math exam, and they literally made me redo the entire year, um, which I was super angry about at the time. But now that I think about it, it was actually a blessing because it gave me another year to kind of practice filmmaking you know that's right and and you did work in film in belgium a little bit yeah and i'm curious if you could share with the audience how it is and 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 um 
what might be some differences that stand out to you between the European uh-huh. film industry and the film industry in the United States? Well, the biggest difference is that fil- European films are not films for commerce. They are funded by usually mostly funded by that country's film fund. So that's taxpayer dollars that are, that are going there. Mm. Um, Belgium at the time, I'm not, I'm, I'm not current cause I haven't lived, I've been gone for a long, long time at the time. They were only making like five features a year and they were, uh, you know, fe- features to get a, a film funded by the film funds. It still has to go through a rigorous, like, uh, process of of uh, you know there's there's people who choose you know who gets the money and who doesn't you know what i mean so some gatekeepers yeah yeah there's a lot of gatekeepers and so first of all there's that um so you're never working on a film that has more than like five million dollars or ten million dollars because they simply like they don't have there ain't no Belgian getting $250 million to make, <laughs> to make a movie. You know what I mean? Like they just don't right. do that because they're not made to make money. They're literally just made for the art, you know? Um, and that the art, a lot of the arts are funded like that over there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that. And then, you know, the system, the, the actual, the, the onset hierarchy is different. Like, like, um, you know, in the American system, the, uh, you know, the first assistant director is not trying to ever be a director. That guy, you know, probably will stay in AD and maybe, maybe eventually start producing. Whereas in Europe, in the European system, the assistant director wants to be a director and will become a director eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, things work a little differently. You know what I noticed, uh, like in Belgium and in Holland, the grips cut the lights like the, like like a, like like an electric will definitely place the lights and is in, in charge of electricity and stuff like that but he's not in charge of like putting scrims or you know putting uh putting anything in front of the lights that was all grip work and mm-hmm. there was like a uh the one that always stands out to me is there's a camera grip where like it's a grip's job like he's literally a grip a camera grip. It's a, it's the grip's <laughs> job to move the camera and that grip, that guy knows how to take that camera apart, put it back together, load film, everything. But he doesn't ever do that unless, you know, for some reason, uh, the loader is sick or something like that. But in the, in the United States, in the American system, if anyone touches a camera besides a camera assistant, like, you know, that guy would get assassinated. <laughs> so I guess there's just things, there's, there's, there's things about um, just technical things, you know, that the, that the, that are different in the European system than they are here. Um, you know, which do you prefer? Um, you know, I think, you know, my independent spirit kind of prefers, uh, you, you know, I, I, I don't know if I necessarily prefer the American system or the European system more. I mean, I know that my style itself probably lends itself more to the European system and just that I'm not trying to make Hollywood blockbuster movies, you know? Right. Um, but, but, you know, there is something to be very, there is something to be said for, um, if you get on a real deal union American movie set, that is a well-oiled machine. And those, those are technicians and craftspeople 
that come from families, you know, generations of, of, um, craft and it's, it's so professional. They're so good at what they do that it's just second nature, you know? And, um, uh, some of the most talented craftspeople in the world and, and, and their, their jobs are really kind of unsung because no one really knows what they do except for people inside the movie business. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, but a first, a, a good focus puller, a good first assistant, uh, camera person, um, what that guy does is it's insane. Like, like, like the level of craft and, and, um, attention to detail and the nerves of steel that those guys have to have, uh, you know, to be able to pull off pulling focus at a shallow depth of field while some guy is like charging straight at the camp. You know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. those, those things are just, those are insider bits of knowledge that the real world, you know, the people outside the film business can't really appreciate because they literally have no idea what's going on there. But yeah, I would say that American craftspeople are probably higher skilled just in that there's more money behind it. Um, the union system, uh, has prov- you know those are families of third and fourth gen- fifth generation guys that are doing that you know what i mean absolutely um so i would just say that the because there's more money in the american system um the level of uh professionalism and just well-oiled machine is higher here but that by no means by no means does that mean that i that the movies are better it just means that the craft itself is is more for me anyway, is more honed in and more, uh, tried and true, if that makes any sense. Oh, it, it definitely does. Like, you know, I remember, I remember watching, uh, gosh, it was, yeah, it was 1917, uh, a couple of years ago, a year or two ago. Um, I can't remember, remember exactly when that movie came out, but to Deacon's movie. Right. And yeah. the shot at the end where the protagonist is, I'm forgetting the character's name and the actress name, but where he's running across the field to deliver the message and the battle is going on all around him. And then, and then that camera shot. And then when he jumps into the ditch to safety and how the camera moves with him and, you know, to find out that that wasn't on any kind of, uh, that wasn't a robot Mm. doing that. I geeked out about that. and, And, uh, the people around me that were watching it with me weren't film people and they were like, okay, big deal. I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> no, yeah. no, 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 that, that is maybe the best shot I've ever seen. Uh, that, that was incredible. Uh, that should win, that shot alone won all the awards for, for me. So I, I'm definitely with you. Um, let's dig now, in. I, oh, let, go let, ahead. Let me just, let me just book in that real fast. Yeah, and, please. And on. I definitely don't mean to say that, um, I mean, some of my favorite DPs in the world are Europeans. Uh, some of my favorite filmmakers in the world are Europeans. I, I, I literally just mean the hierarchical uh, professionality uh, of yes. the way that the, the American system is set up is simply because it has so much more money is able to be that much more of a machine. Does that make sense? It may, it, that's, it's, that's, but it's, it's, it's absolute really truth. Different. Yeah. That's it's absolute really truth. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm with you for sure. Because I uh, believe we were talking about this early last year um, about how many films were coming out of the UK 
that were just as you described, like these one to five million dollar sort of taxpayer BBC funded films that were great, but they couldn't sell them like the market had dried up uh, on them. This is actually right before the pandemic. I'm sure they sold as soon as the pandemic hit because <laughs> people needed stuff to watch. But there was a crisis going on in indie film in Europe because you had all these taxpayer uh, funded $5 million, $3 million indie films that couldn't find a market anymore because of the, just the way that, that, that the net, the Netflixification, I'll just create a word of, of the distribution side of, of film where, Hey, we want to compete with Netflix. Let's make our own things. Let's be insular. And we're, you know, we're not going to scour the market for films as much anymore. But I think the pandemic actually switched that. It was kind of a, a boon period for indie creatives and smaller creatives all the way around. It was very interesting uh, how it all went down. Um, speaking of independent film, you made a, a touching documentary. I really enjoyed it. Uh, made in Japan. And this follows the story of the first Japanese woman to play at the grand old Opry. Yeah. So Tomi uh, Fujiyama. That's right. Yeah. And I want to know how you found out that this person existed. How did you know Tommy existed? And why did it take 11 years to make this documentary? Okay. Well, um, so at the time I was married to a, a, a Japanese woman, um, mm -hmm. no longer married to that person, but uh, I was young and I, and I knew I, I was 24 when I first, when I started making Made in Japan. Um, and at that time, at that point in my career, I knew that I had to make a feature. All of my favorite guys, everyone that I knew, like no one, you know, at that time, you know, you're young. It's like, oh, I should make a bunch of short movies and then I can make a really good short movie. And then that short movie, you know, maybe I can use that as a calling card to, uh, to fund my, my, my feature. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, 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 you know, that was the, that was the thought. And, and I was like, I early on figured out, yeah, that ain't happening. Like, no, like, like you can make, you can make the best short film, short film in the world. That doesn't mean no one is giving you money. Like literally no one is giving you money. So I just kind of early on figured out, like, I got to make a feature, like come hell or high water. And I wasn't setting out to be a documentarian. I wasn't setting out to make documentary. Um, so I, I, Fast forward, I'm kind of uh, just married this Japanese woman, uh, and we went to. Uh, she was a jazz singer. My ex-wife is a jazz singer, and um, she took me back to Japan. And uh, she's like, "I know this lady that you got to meet. Um, she was the first Japanese person to play on the Grand Ole Opry. She's a country singer, <laughs> and uh, you know, I used to take. She used to take voice lessons from 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 Tomi. My ex-wife used to take voice lessons from Tomi Fujiyama. Got it." And so I went to a gig in, in Yokohama and I just see this tiny little, she's like four foot 10, literally. Like she's yeah, yeah. like this tiny little woman uh, killing it, just absolutely killing it. And, and I kind of, um, at first, and it was also, I think the age that I was at first, it was like, yeah, I, I totally want to go see this. I want to go see the, 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 the really weird thing. Yes. Let's go watch a Japanese person play uh, country music. <laughs> and then, and then I, I, I quickly realized that the, that 
the woman was 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 authentic, was real, and um, that this was a very uh, she knew what she was doing. She and she she was amazing, and uh, I just was I just fell in love with her. And then I um, while I was standing there watching her play, I was like, I'm going to make a movie about this woman, and I'm going to get her back on the Grand Ole Opry, and that's just what's going to happen. And then so I. Uh, talked to her after the show and then ended up going over to her house to meet her and her husband um like a week later and we signed a little deal she told me that i that sure you you can you can um try and make a movie about me and then i said okay i'm going to and i don't think she really actually didn't i don't think she believed it um right then i went back to the states thinking i was going to find money for it and then that quickly it quickly became apparent that no one was going to give me any money um and so I just kind of started piecemeal making the film in like 2005. I went back and actually did some shooting and um, a lot of that stuff made the final cut of the film. Um, and then I was thinking that I'd, I'd, I'd find, okay, now I'll find the money. Right. Uh, and then uh, no money went back again in 2006 <laughs> to do some more shooting. And then I was like, while I was over there, I was like, well, maybe if I just like, maybe I should go ahead and reach out to Grand Ole Opry and like get them interested. Cause, cause surely and clearly they'll be interested in, in this piece of this living piece of history. Like they'll have her back on. And then maybe, you know, I'll have this woman who's going to get back on the Grand Ole Opry and then maybe we can find some money. So I, 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 I totally contacted the Grand Ole Opry and I found out who it was that I needed to contact. And they were completely uninterested, like unequivocally, we could give two flying fucks about this woman. No. Um, and that really um, was very disheartening for me because at that point, at the, I had already been kind of at it for a couple of years. And when they said no, I was like, "What do you mean? What, what do you mean no? Like, what, what, like, what, I, like I, I, I couldn't understand." And I wrote back. I was like, "Are you sure that you understand?" Like, <laughs> I literally wrote an email back. Like, wait a minute. Let me let me explain to you who this woman is one more. And, and it was like, "No, yeah, we know who she is. We're just we're just not." Yeah, no. (laughs) And so so then it kind of took a turn and it was like, well, wait a minute. Like now you're okay. So now you have basically uh, made yourselves the enemy. Like, and I don't mean, I don't mean that in like a, I am not Michael Moore. I'm not setting i did not set out to make a movie to make anyone the enemy i made a, I set out to make a movie about this amazing woman who who uh gets to relive like the most her most precious memory in history you know in, in her history yep and they kind of just shot themselves in the foot and i think that they thought that i was just going to go away but what they didn't understand was is no i'm going to make this movie like regardless of whether or not, and I'm not going to stop trying to get her on the Grand Ole Opry. Like I'm, I am, I am, <laughs> I am. You know, I'm like a booger that you're not going to be able to shake off. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, <laughs> and so, um, finally, you know, years and years have gone by, and and I would, you know, I would go. We still got to shoot this part part of the movie, so I would we would sublet our apartment in Brooklyn, and we would go to Japan, and we would do that part of the shooting, and then, okay, but I got to get you to 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 Na- uh, to Nashville again, and you know, so all of this, you know, we would do all these things, and all of this incredible kind of synergy would happen every single time we would shoot another part of the puzzle would be would be complete, and it would always be amazing because the woman the woman was amazing. 
And then um, it finally came down to it. It was like uh, it became clear they are literally not going to. It's just not going to happen. She's not going to be get, ever get back on the Grand Ole Opry. Mm. And so in uh, two thousand and um, like eight, I had shot this sequence with her at the Ryman Auditorium where it was just her empty on the stage. And uh, she gets to sing the song. You know, her song was the Tennessee Waltz. We had her go out there and sing the song. I literally had the stage for 30 minutes. Like, at, literally, I, 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 at 7 a.m. on a Sunday, I had to pay uh, the Ryman's 250 bucks to let us come in there and shoot it. Um, we shot that, and then that became the ending of the film originally. Originally, the ending was she doesn't get back on. And uh, it was this sad song. And it was, it was, um, that was the version of the movie that played at South by Southwest. And it was super power. And I was like, I was, I was just kind of like, yeah, all right. She did. We didn't get her back on the Grand Ole Opry, but I told the woman's story and we premiered at South by Southwest. And, you know, Morgan Spurlock uh, came on board as our executive producer and Elijah Wood came on board and he narrated the movie. And, and, and then lo and behold, we're at South by Southwest and she gets invited on Jimmy Kimmel because Kimmel was broadcasting from South by and oh, wow. who do we meet backstage? Brad Paisley and Brad <laughs> and Brad Paisley goes, he came over cause he saw her during soundtrack because she played with the band with Jimmy Kimmel's band. Like she's <laughs> Kimmel asked her to sit in the whole show. So she, she sat in the whole show and played with the band that whole episode um, after soundcheck, Brad Paisley came over to us and was and introduced himself and uh, wanted to talk to Tommy. And he goes, "Well, you should try and get her on the Grand Ole Opry." <laughs> 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 and I was like, "I was like, really, Brad Paisley? Interesting that you say this." Um, and then I kind of filled him in on what we'd been dealing with, and, um, right. and he goes, "Well, I can get her on the Grand Ole Opry." And uh, he was like, when's the next time you're in Nashville? And and we were like, well, Made in Japan does play at the Nashville International Film Festival in a month. We'll be there then. And he goes, all right, well, you know, he, he put us in touch with um, his manager, Darlene, who was very nice. And uh, we were in Nashville a month later and we got a phone call. I mean, we let them know that we were there and, and they were like, well, if she can stay another week, I can get her on on Tuesday night. And I was like, son of a bitch, Jesus, you, are you serious? And wow. so we had to kind of out of nowhere, we had to go back into like we had to now we're in production mode again. So we uh, we figured it out. You know, my producers, everyone was already in town because we were here for the for the film festival. So um we just got cameras and we got her back on the Opry, man. And we, 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 we shot that thing. And that's the ending now. I don't mean to give away the ending to anyone who hasn't seen it, but um, it is worth, I mean, it's such a crazy story that I, I always end up telling it anyway. You know? Well, I uh, thank you for it. That is an amazing story. That um, is, it is a, it is a, it is a story of perseverance and what can happen if you keep your eye on the prize, but in, also of creativity. I mean, you found a way to make a film that was gripping and touching and took you a different place uh, so that you could get the ending you wanted. I am I am fascinated about that. And, and so thank you for sharing it. I do want to go back 
because I am confused on one point in the story. Sure. Did, did the did it premiere at South by, and then from there it intrigued Morgan Spurlock and no. Elijah Wood, or no. did that happen first? And if so, how did that they get involved? First. They they got it. Oh, Elijah is an old friend of mine um, who I'd known since uh, two thousand three, two thousand four. Oh, um, got it. Just Jess, we had mutual friends, and he's just someone that uh, was in my life every now and again. Like, Elijah's in town. We're all going to go for dinner with Elijah. You know, he was just someone that I knew. And then um, he saw a very early cut of some of the stuff that I had shot in Japan in 2005 and just fell in love with Tommy. And was a, and I know his brother and his sister as well, and, and the woods were just... Um, very supportive in, 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 uh, a friend way, just, just, you know, very supportive in what I was doing. And they, they really, and you know, when Elijah was, you could tell he was really engaged and, and really loved her. And so, you know, the, you know, back when I was still looking for money, I thought <laughs> if mm -hmm. I got, if I got Elijah, maybe I'll ask him and maybe he, he would narrate it and then I would find the money to do it. Um, I asked Elijah, he said, yes, didn't find any money. <laughs> <laughs> However, he did. And I asked him in 2007 and he stayed true to his word. Like he even, um, I don't, I don't think we finished the movie until like 2014. I think I got Elijah's VO, his narration. I think I might've gotten that literally in 2015. Oh, he wow. stayed true to his word. Like eight years later, he still came and he did it for me. Um, and we gave him an executive producer credit. And uh, Morgan saw the movie because my editor, Julie Lombardi, um, I had two editors on that movie, but um, Julie and Vicky. But Julie had been, uh, she edited Super Size Me, Morgan's first movie. Right. And uh, showed Morgan the film. She was like, I got to show this to Morgan, you know, because it was, no one knew. I mean, I knew it was, I knew the whole time that it was, I mean, it, of course. Of course I did. I was the one making the film. It was my vision. I was like, this movie is going to be the best goddamn documentary ever made. <laughs> like I, I, I was invested in it like that. None of the people that I was working with ever, ever were because they simply couldn't be. It wasn't their vision. I wasn't paying anyone until I finally could. There was a point where we did find a little bit of money to be able to post it, to, 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 to finally get it through post. Um, it, when when the film was it quickly became apparent like that it was actually going to be a very good film and 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 uh, julie uh uh was like when the time is right i'm going to show this to morgan and, and she showed him an early cut and he he uh was thrilled liked it very much and um we asked him if he wanted to come on board we had, we had, at that point, we had just submitted it to South by for the second time. Cause the first time we submitted to second to, to South by in 2014, we got turned down. Then we went back to the drawing board and edited it again, like for another year, we, we did ma major changes. And, uh, Morgan, uh, was very, uh, key in getting us into South by, got it. uh, through him, we, we were able to finally make the connections and, and, and be able to, uh, to get seen. Um, and un it is an unfortunate part of the film business, which I don't think of the independent film business, which, which I don't think a lot of people uh, truly put enough thought into is, is that your relationships 
are incredibly important. It doesn't mean that you, uh, yes, there's a, 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 a great amount of luck involved. However, if you, if you play your cards right and you remain authentic and you are smart, you can find those connections to people that will be able to get you in the door somewhere. But it really, I think it really depends on, 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 for me, it was key to stay authentic, to stay, uh, to, to, to keep my integrity, to not try and step on other people while I was doing that and to remain true to the material because I knew that if I did that, that the material would be good enough. And I believe that to this day, I think that any young aspiring person, if you just stick with what you feel as opposed to what you think is going to make you the most money, the what you feel thing, that's what people respond to. The what you think is going to make you the money thing, probably not so much. You know, I can't agree more because one of the things that happens to me a lot is I'll be asked to make a connection, but asked to make a connection on work that I don't believe in. And I'm not sure that the person making the request of me understands how big of a deal that is. Right. It's a it's a deal breaker. It, it, It could it could ruin the relationship I have with the person they want to get in the door with totally. If I totally. bring them shit content. Absolutely. And, and, and I don't think that I fully, what I, I think another thing that a lot of people uh, early on in their, their careers don't understand is, is like, like, yeah, you got that independent project that you're, you're putting your, all your blood, sweat and tears into and you're, and it's going great. And, it, and when it, you got this product and wow, it's amazing. And then now you, Oh, holy shit. You get into a festival and then now what? Mm-hmm. People don't know that that, that 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 side of the business, once you get in there, that's when the business starts. <laughs> that's when the business starts. It's not you making the movie. It's not you learning how to make a good movie. It, no one tells you what you've got to be able to do once that movie is done. And and I it was such a steep learning curve for me and for all of the filmmakers that I my producer um, my fellow producers who who worked so tirelessly on that movie with me no one had been through that process yet you know mm-hmm. and and that's a whole thing man once you get into that 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 side of the business it's like the teaching is over now it's your now it's sink or swim now it's like now you got to learn how to do business and you're, you're now you're a real thing. And now it's like, are, are you a commodity or not? Can your movie sell? Can your movie, you, you know what I mean? Like, 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 are you going to be able to do this for a living? That's what it, you know, and, and, and that, the doing it for a living part, that's literally like you might as well. Now you're a professional. And, right. and, and being a professional at anything is being a professional. So, yes, making movies is hard. Yes, making good a good movie is hard. In the business itself, it's just like a given. Of course you made a good movie. Otherwise, you wouldn't be sitting in this goddamn chair with me right now talking about, you know, who can we sell it to? So now you're you so now you're 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 expected to be a professional. And that part right there is where I think a lot of people uh choke because they literally don't have the experience or 
they're flying high on the fumes from being treated, you know, like a king at festivals, or they don't have the right people around them, or, you know, maybe they have drug and alcohol problems because you see a lot of that in our film, in our business as well. Yep. yep. You know, um, yeah, it's part of the reason we made this podcast <laughs> was to educate independent filmmakers on what they need to do in starting at pre-pro, which is please have a marketing and branding budget. And then to talk about how you have to work after post or after festival to sell your film. Yeah. And, and there's a thought out there that you're going to play a game that you weren't invited to. Like, so you're going to go play the Hollywood game and someone's going to sell the movie for you. No, you got to go out there and evangelize your film. You need to have the energy and the juice for it. Oftentimes, the filmmakers don't because it took everything to make the movie. And so, you know, I, are they going to get a chance to get a breather and, and rejuvenate the energy to go out and make a sales effort? Yeah. I mean, we got lucky in that, um, well, with Made in, Japan, Made in Japan, getting that movie sold and, and distributed distributed was a whole debacle. But uh, I did, um, we did have a little bit of a budget for that. And, and I, I got a lot of really good press at the time. Mm-hmm. Like I, I had a very good uh, PR person at South by Southwest who got us a lot of good coverage. And, uh, and that all of this came through Morgan. Um, I, I also um, went to all the festivals. Like I, 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 I spent a lot of my own money <laughs> to, 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 well, first of all, to make the film, but to also keep the, keep the buzz going you know what i mean like and and yeah a lot of festivals will fly you out and they'll put you up but you're still like you're you're spending a lot of money just to be there you know what i mean and you're not working on other things and and uh i got lucky in that while made in japan was on the festival circuit i got hired to make my second film and that was a whole other ball game you know are you talking about the the dwarven knot yes yes because that film has a cult following. Yeah. <laughs> it is it is such a fun film about such an interesting gentleman, uh, Stephen Pokorny. Stefan. Stefan. Or Stefan, I'm sorry. I, I, I actually have it spelled right in front of me, and I said it wrong anyway. Uh, <laughs> my apologies. Yeah, Stefan. Okay. Stefan Pokorny, and which is a crazy, I've never heard that last name in my life. I, I, I'm almost not sure it's if it's real. Czech. It's Czech. His stepfather, his his adopted father uh, was from the Czech Republic. Got it, got it. Well, he is he is uh, a type of genius, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> and you have this quote. You said, "I'd never met anyone quite like Stefan Pokorny." And from the moment we met, I knew we were about to embark on something nutty. Yes. So, how did you meet Stefan, and uh, where did you meet him? Well, okay, so um, at the time, my editor, so I had two editors on Made in Japan, uh, Julie Lombardi and Victoria LeChoux. And Vicky, um, used, she, an editor friend of Vicky's, uh, was a huge Dungeons and Dragons fanatic and uh, <laughs> had been hipped to Stefan and Dwarven Forge just by Stefan's kind of online presence. But the videos that Stefan were making were horrible. 
like the stuff that they were putting out there was like literally stuff shot with their you know iphone 3 like no 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 filmmaking uh behind it um and he had he had uh you know he'd done his his two kickstarter campaigns very successfully that's the whole thing uh about him is is that his company dwarven forge they uh so for people who don't know anything mean, we're kind of getting into a different territory here stefan pokorny <laughs> has a company called dwarven forge what dwarven forge does is they make dungeons and dragons gaming terrain or gaming terrain for any kind of role-playing like tabletop role-playing game mm-hmm. they make it in, in in resin or in uh pvc but they are the world's the leader they, they, they like they make the ferrari of that thing and uh they're kickstarter funded um Stefan started the company back in the 90s, but he was almost bankrupt. And then in 2011, as kind of a Hail Mary pass, he did a Kickstarter and the geek world united and he raised <laughs> like crazy money for like for and so enough to keep him in business. And then the second year that they did it, they raised like literally over two million dollars. Wow. So he by by and, and this isn't two million dollars that goes into his pocket. This is two million dollars. Basically, if you pledge during one of their Kickstarter events, um, you're basically buying. You're pre-ordering because what the, the, the money comes in, and then they uh, have everything mass produced in China, and then you get your thing. So it usually takes about six months before you get your whatever it is that you ordered. Right. Forbes magazine is named Dwarven Forge as like one of the most successful kickstarted companies of all times. Um, so I met Stefan because that guy, um, Vicky introduced me to Nate, who was a fan, and Nate is also a filmmaker. However, um, just at that time, um, you know, they were talking about doing a pilot for uh, like a reality show or something like that. And yeah. they were they were willing to put to pony up some cash for that. And, you know, would Nate be interested? And the, the fact of the matter was Nate was just too busy. So Vicky told Nate, like, look, I know this other guy who just who just finished this feature. Um, and we hadn't even been a, a, accepted in the South by yet. Um, but uh he just finished this feature and he's, you know, uh, you know, you might want to talk to him. So I met with Nate and then, uh, he kind of hipped me to, to, to what kind of a person that Stefan was, you know? <laughs> and, uh, I was like, man, that sounds like my kind of guy. So I got a camera, uh, uh my, my camera guy, uh, Mike Gomes, who ended up shooting the whole thing. And we went over there and we met Stefan and it just became apparent that like, yeah, this is going to happen. And uh, I, at first, I got hired to make a pilot for a reality show about Dwarven Forge, and I was like, you know, I could ter- I could make a feature out of this. And then we got into South by, and then I was like, see, I make features, <laughs> <laughs> and and I was like, why don't we do this instead of that? And so it turned into a feature and I, I followed him through his third Kickstarter campaign. I followed that company through their, their third Kickstarter campaign. And I told his story from beginning to end, um, which was just a fascinating, it's just a fascinating story. Like the guy himself is such a fascinating guy. Um, and we got this crazy, like surreal documentary 
which um, I was also given the 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 um, opportunity to. I made all the music for it, which was great for me because as a filmmaker, I, I've always played music, but I never um, never aspired to be a professional musician. I just wanted to make. I just play guitar in my house. You know what I mean? Like, but I yeah. always have been. I always make my own music. Um, and I was able to score that movie and, and I was really, you know, when we had a budget and I was, it was the first time that I was really able to kind of flex as an artist and be able to, to be like, wow, man, you know, we've got the money to do the things that we need to do, you know? Um, and, uh, miraculously that thing got it. We went from production, from pre-production November, 2014 to South by Southwest 2016 world premiere. I shot, <laughs> made that whole movie and got it into South by Southwest in a year. Wow. While on the festival circuit for Made in Japan. <laughs> 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 so I would, I would fly off to some festival, come home, shoot two or three days, get on another plane, go somewhere else. And miraculously, I, I figured out it, that just when I look at it now, I was like, I don't know how that happens because I was just a kid who wanted to make movies really bad, and 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 I made it happen, and it did, and it does. Like uh, I've got uh, I've got stuff going on now. I mean, I'm, I'm not uh, crazy. Uh, I'm not swept up in a in a film festival, uh, uh, you know, whirlwind right now. But but I have because of those things, I have been able to keep doing what I do, you know, and figure out how to, you know, still slowly but surely plot along as a, uh, as a director, you know? Yeah, absolutely. What, what a couple of years of your life, uh, you'll, you'll be telling that story to, uh, your grandkids someday, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. do you know what Stefan's doing now? Yeah. He, I mean, Stefan and I are, um, well, part two to that, to the Dwarvenaut, is Steph and I became such good friends. And while we were in Italy, we we, we, we the, a large portion of the film was shot in Italy, and and uh, because oh, because gotcha. his he his he was adopted by an Italian by Italians. But his father was 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 Czech, and he his mother was Italian. Um, they adopted him in the United States, but they were ethnic. They were he was his father Jan Picorni was from the Czech Republic, and his mo- mother was from Italy. So he spent mm. a lot of his youth growing up and in, in, uh, going going to, to Europe in the summers. So a, a large part of the film was shot in Italy. And uh, a, a lot of that footage didn't make it into the film. And so while I was cutting together some of the DVD extras, I made this little 10-minute documentary. And it's literally Stefan in Italy. We just kind of followed him around in Venice. And then we followed him around in Rome. And it was the most hilarious thing that I'd ever done because it's it, it's like Anthony Bourdain on acid, like, <laughs> like this, this crazy Fruit Loop, and I lovable Fruit Loop. I say that with much love and affection. He's literally one of my yeah. favorite people on the planet, Stefan. Yeah. And I and him and I both kind of at the same time we were like, man, we can make it. We could we we can make a TV show out of this. And we kind of both just like looked at each other. And and I was like, yeah, that I, I I think that that would so like a, like like a documentary travel series based on the origins of fantasy, mm-hmm. and and that's I'm not a fantasy guy. Like I've never I've never been a Star Wars dude. I've never been a Harry Potter guy. I've never been that, that guy. But 
I'm a Stefan Picorni guy. Right. <laughs> and 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 I came our sensibilities are so similar that we just decided, all right, well, let's try and see if we can't make that happen. And um so in 2019, after I'd already moved, I'd already moved down here to Nashville. Um, and we 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 developed a pilot and went and shot uh and produced 2019 was spent producing a pilot for that show. It's called Destination Fantastic. We went to Iceland. We did a whole thing on the Vikings and on like the origin of of, of the fantasy genre with um, Viking mythology and uh, volcanoes and glaciers. And we touched on the gaming culture in Iceland. And like it's like that's the root of the show is, is to travel the world in search of fantasy. Yeah. Um, are in business with uh, Legion M, which who are a production company out in Los Angeles, and they 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 do a lot of really cool things. Um, they they worked on Mandy, the movie Mandy that came out a couple of years ago. They worked on uh, Tolkien. They worked on um, I think it's called Colossus, that movie that uh, what's his name uh, Nacho uh, Nacho Vigalando Nacho Vigalando. Um, he's done a, he, you know, just quirky, quirky film director. Um, anyway, cool people. And we are, we are in in business with them and, um, COVID slowed us way down because we were hoping to actually already kind of be making the film (laughs) or making the show, the show. Yeah. But we're, um, slowly, but surely the wheels are turning and hopefully that, uh, show gets picked up and we'll be doing that. And, uh, I, I think it, I think it will because, uh, Stefan kind of jumps out at you on the screen a little bit and a lot of bit. I would, <laughs> yeah. And so I tell anyone listening that hasn't seen your film, the Dwarvenaut, go seek it out on Amazon prime right now. And, uh, it is well worth the two ninety nine that it will cost you to rent it. So please spend the $3 on this film and not on, let's say, a coffee. And sit back and enjoy. Yeah. And, yes, for, the, and, for, for the price of a coffee, you you can behold one of the, a film about one of the most in the unique individuals that, that, that the universe has ever gifted our planet. <laughs> right, right. If there was, if there was a, the... It, the theory that uh, half alien, half human people walk the earth uh, is, is supported in this in this man's uh, body and, and behavior. I, I think it's great. Um, and in the meantime, he's literally like one of my best friends. I, I tell my wife this all the time. I was like, seems like a cool I feel, dude. I don't know how this happened, but I feel so blessed that I have that guy in my life. Because he, every single time I talk to him, the biggest grin. Like, like from ear to ear, every minute of being in that guy's presence, it's like you're smiling your ass off, giggling, laughing. And I can only, and I can only say that like some, some of my most joyous moments on this planet were making that movie with that guy in an airplane flying to God knows where we were going. But like true, I, I, those those moments, that that stuff will probably never happen ever again. You know what I mean? Like those were those were once in a lifetime moments, and to be able to, the, the thought of being able to make a TV show with the guy where that's literally, uh, you know, traveling the globe. I, right. I just contradicted myself. I said that will literally never happen again. 
hopefully the moments of me traveling with him will, will happen again. But the, the, the childlike wonder, the, the wonderment, the amazement, like in the meantime, he's, he's a good friend of mine. I know him. Then it was just like, holy shit, this exists. Like this guy is real. You know what I mean? Yeah. I I can't wait to see uh, destination. Fantastic. That, uh, that sounds right up my alley, and and uh, I know it's going to happen because it's just thank you, it, thank it, it you just, for your optimism. We need it, and, yeah. and, and there are good things happening, and I believe in it fully. And um, uh, I think you will be hearing more about that soon. I yeah. can I cannot wait. You you've been so generous with your time. I just have a few more questions. Are are we good? Yeah, man. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, what are the two best pieces of advice? Uh, you've been given in your career and who did they come from? Okay. Um, and, uh, like just straight up career advice Mm -hmm. was, uh, when I was 22 and I had only been in New York for maybe six months or maybe a year, I got a very unique opportunity to work on coffee and cigarettes, Jim Jarmusch movie Mm. as a PA was on it for two days and I got the com- I had the opportunity to have a conversation. Excuse me, to have a conversation with with Jim Jarmusch about filmmaking. Very, I, I shouldn't have been doing that. I was breaking all of the rules of set hierarchy. I pissed off a lot of people, but I, at that point in my life, I was like, "That's Jim Jarmusch. <laughs> I'm going to go and talk to him." And he was. It was at a down moment, and he was. Jim's a very nice guy. So he was very generous and uh, willing to talk to me about it. And, and I asked him, I, you know, I said, I've got these, this stuff inside of me that I want to, I want to do, I want to make these movies. And I, and I, and I, I, uh, I don't know how to, I don't know how to find the money. And I and like, how do I, how Jim, you know, what, what do I do? And he said, I, I don't have an answer for you, but I can tell you, that if you follow your heart and not the money that you'll you will figure it out Mm. so and i took that very seriously and now granted like jim jarmusch has had that kid come up to him a million times in his career right and 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 he's probably given that answer a million times but that has proven to be true in my career i followed that piece of advice from him now, granted, I was already on that path. I was, uh, I was already de- dead set on making my movies, and, f- and, 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 but I don't think you know if he hadn't told me that, then I probably would not have just said, "Fuck it, I'm going to make this documentary, whether or not I have the money to do it or not." I mean, basically, what he was saying is, "Is don't whine, don't complain, uh, 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 just, just make the movie." I mean, I, I think he literally told me that. I think he literally, I remember him saying, "Just make the movie. Just make it." Stop right. worrying about whether or not it's going to get into festivals, whether or not you're going to be famous because of it, whether or not you're going to find money to make the thing. Just pick up the fucking camera and make the goddamn movie. And 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 I can't tell you how many people that I knew as I progressed in my in my because I, I I worked have worked in the film business like in the business for a long time before I ever did anything as a director or made it made any a name for myself as any kind of a name for myself as a director. I I PA'd forever and then I became an art director on, on music videos. Like I used to production design music videos. Um I'd be I, I'm a professional editor. But 
anyone that I knew coming up um, would always talk about when I make my movie, but no one was making a movie or there were those who were making movies, but, and those are, those are people, any of the people that I know or knew back then who made it were literally people like me who were saying, I don't need the goddamn money or maybe I do need some money, but I'm going to find it in a, in a, in a, in an unconventional way, or I'm going to mm-hmm. come hell or high water. I'm going to get it done. And, and, and that's what I did. And, and that's how after 11 years I had a film that got into South by Southwest. It wasn't, I didn't, what I would say to any young upcoming director is, is exactly what Jim Jarmusch told me is, is just make the fucking movie. Mm-hmm. make it and and don't and don't um there's two kinds of filmmakers there's artists and there's people who got in to make money and for, unfortunately for people like us there are people in this business who are in it to make money and they are successful and 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 a lot of those people got to where they are by stepping on other people by shit talking other people by by doing bad like by becoming assholes, professional ones. And in real life, unfortunately, the bad guy oftentimes wins. In real mm-hmm. life, there is no comeuppance. In real life, the bad guy, a lot of times, he becomes a millionaire. <laughs> mm-hmm. And not only that, and, and then he, he, he and then he makes other people's lives miserable by him being a millionaire. So if you want to, if you want to know from me, and I know you're not asking me this, but if if a if if if, if a budding filmmaker wants to know from me, how do I get into this business and make a bunch of money? Then I tell them, you're in the wrong business. Go do something else. Go become a fucking stockbroker. If you're in the business because you just can't do anything else, and you, you it, it, like you literally, like you could not fathom your life beyond this, and you're willing to live like you're in college until you're 45, then sure, then come do this. And do it with a smile on your face because it's it's one of the hardest things that you could possibly do. But know that you're doing what you love, and that in itself is 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 for me was imperative. It's like I I don't have another thing that I can do. And not only that, I financially locked myself into a project that was it was like it was like it's I either get this thing done or or I I'm not going to have a career. You know. Um, yeah. And it, in a, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to make a movie and to have the skill set to do it and to be able to live a life fulfilled through your work and your art and the messages that you want to put out in the world uh, versus making a bunch of money that you can always make. You know, people always will say, well, time is money. And I hate that because time is not money. Time is so much more valuable. Yeah. Every time I've lost money, I made money back. But I've never been able to make the time back, not even once. So maybe maybe Elon Musk can figure that out for for us all. We get the time back. (laughs) Uh, He's got he know he's got some shit figured out that we definitely don't. (laughs) (laughs) That's for that's for sure. That's for sure. Uh, That's my one. That's one piece of advice. And then I guess the other piece of advice was kind of what we touched on earlier on. Is and it's something that I didn't learn until later. Is is that the business really doesn't begin until after the film is made. Hmm. So, so as far as, um, I think we touched on it a little bit and you said that you, you guys kind of try and school people on this earlier is like eventually like, yes, honing in on the craft, 
and hone in on your style and hone in on all of that. Get all of that on lock. And what, but eventually that is going to just become par for the course. And then, and then it's business. So I kind of, I would almost say like, yes, have fun, watch out for drugs and alcohol and, 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 um, Try and, and, you know, Scorsese said it once best. He's, he's, he's like, it's it's the film is the perfect marriage between business and art. And oftentimes it's an unhappy marriage because those two sides of your brain, they just aren't made to, to, to work like that. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So just keep in mind that it's a business. And, and um, but that doesn't mean that you can't make it your own business, especially now. In this day and age, you know, that's exactly right. We don't need 35 millimeter cameras anymore. Movies are being made on iPhones. You can get out there and practice that craft and get good. You know, at a younger, younger now than you used to be able to. When I, I, I'm kind of like the last generation of filmmakers that, uh, I still, it was, you know, I was making films before the DSLR revolution. (laughs) So if you were making, you know, HD movies, you still needed a pretty decent camera and you you still needed shit. If you were going to put lenses on a camera, you know, that was, you needed an insurance policy. You needed things. You needed some money. Nowadays, you don't need fucking anything (laughs) to hone in on your craft. You know what I mean? An iPhone, an iPhone 12 Pro and Filmic Pro for $15 from the app store and maybe a screw on lens that you can yeah. get from Amazon and you're good to go. The soft lights are really cheap now. Like you can get a pair of soft lights for a hundred bucks or so. hundred bucks. Yeah. yeah I mean, you can, you can do it if you want to do it. Um, there's a filmmaker in town named Katie Amon who I admire a lot and she, shoots full feature films on iPhone eights and has an entire process around how to, how to buy up the phones and what to do with them afterwards wow. and all that stuff. So yeah, I would definitely recommend anyone listening to, to check out Katie. She just released a feature film called Faye, which is the first feature film starring one woman from beginning to end, just one person in the, in the movie from beginning oh, wow. to end. Yeah. Horror movie. Uh, so, uh, one woman in a cabin, uh, not that this is like sponsored by Faye and Katie Amon, but yeah, there's just one woman in a, a cabin fun. losing, losing her mind slowly. So yeah, check that out. It was shot on an iPhone, I believe. Uh, you're, you're a passionate guy, Josh. This has been a blast. I, I'm curious, how do you see yourself giving back through the work you do? Um, what, what is the impact or message you want to leave behind? I'm not really a message guy. I kind of try and stay away from messages because I consider myself a highly flawed individual, you know, and, mm-hmm. and um, I've had a, a, a pretty crazy life, uh, pretty dramatic and traumatic uh, youth. And um, it's been very difficult to do what I do. Um, and to kind of get through to get through childhood to where I am now has been a it's been a, a journey for sure. But I I, I don't I, I consider myself very flawed, so I don't like to try and point fingers and, and say you should think this. 
in my work because I think that if you know you look at I'm I'm just I'm just maybe I'm not that confident you know maybe I'm not confident <laughs> enough to tell the world you need to think this but what I I, I kind of um, what I do is is I stick true to my style I uh, I um, I don't take projects that I don't believe in. I uh, only take projects that yeah that, that that I I know that I can make excellent on my barometer, um, and I feel like I guess I kind of just try and set an example for other people who 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 uh, want to learn how to do this. I just try and be as honest as I possibly can. Um, and last year when the tornado came through. Um, I was given an opportunity to go shoot for four days um, with a very small crew um, for no money. Uh, it was a little bit of money, uh, but, but not when I say no money, I'm, I mean, in film terms, no money. Um, and we're, we're working on finishing that thing. That's a work in progress. Um, I'm not, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with that, but that was really just you know, you can make art in 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 in, in lieu of uh, donating money. You can you can you can make art um, to reflect the time, as opposed to you know, art is a reflection of the time. So for me, if I'm ever going to make something with a message, it's literally just holding up a mirror and showing it, as opposed to saying like you need to think this or that. It's like yeah. I what I do with my films is I show. My, I hold up a mirror. I, sh- I show that, and I say, "Like, what do you see? Does that does that make sense?" Mm, I love it. Does it. I love it. I hope that that makes sense. I, I'm not, and, yeah. I, and I honestly mean that. I'm not trying to sound like some. It's not some hipster bullshit. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, we we get a lot of that in Nashville, but these days. But uh, I don't think you're one at all. Uh, this has been just a wonderful conversation, and. Uh, so many points to touch on. I, I, I have so much research on you. I probably could talk to you for another two hours, but uh, we'll save it for round two. Josh, tell everybody where they can find you on the internet, on social media, and maybe even see some of your work. Okay. Well, so you can find me on uh, just at inatunnel.com. Um, we also, you can find us on Instagram and on Facebook. Just look up, uh, let's see, what is my Instagram handle? I think it's in a, at in a tunnel. Um, <laughs> and same for, same for Facebook. You can find us on Facebook. Um, you can see Made in Japan. It is no longer streaming as of like a, a like Amazon just dumped a bunch of titles, but you can still rent it. It's on Amazon and it's on Tubi. Uh, you can see Made in Japan, and you can also see the Dwarvenaut um, on all of the online portals, uh, Amazon, iTunes, like all of the stuff, like all of the SVOD things. Like all you got to do is Google it. You can find both of those movies. And then I would say um, stay in tune because you're going to start hearing stuff about Destination Fantastic. And and that that hopefully from – this podcast to God's ears um, is going to come into fruition. <laughs> I believe that, it. That's going to be a show <laughs> unlike anything you've ever seen before. <laughs> I absolutely cannot wait for it. And uh, we'll, we'll end on this. Um, what are the advantages of having your life partner as a business partner? And what are some of the drawbacks as well? My wife's a photographer. She's a, she's a, uh, 
documentary photographer and she's a photo retoucher. And um, she'd never shot video before. And then during this pandemic, we just kind of did some experiments and they went really well. And I was like, I can use your skill. Well, let's, let's, let's pull our skill sets together. So now we're a husband and wife filmmaker team. She's, she's shot multiple projects for me. Um, and just by me kind of under my direction, she's becoming like a, I don't mean like I'm teaching her to be a DP. I just mean like if I direct her what I want, then she can figure it. She's been able to figure it out. And we're becoming like a, like a, like a really cool filmmaking team. And that's something that I never thought I'd have at my disposal. Um, so that's been great. Like it just my partner, my wife is, is my life partner and I've been blessed to have someone that her, our aesthetic is very similar. So it, 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 um, it just kind of works like that. So creatively we've been able to feed off of each other's skills because she's a photographer and a retoucher. I'm a director and a, and a professional editor. So we've been able to pull our skills together and we've become a rock and roll team. You know what I mean? I um, love it. So that's, uh, it's just been incredibly advantageous. Um, any kind of, of, uh, yeah, I mean like she's my wife. So oftentimes, uh, on a set, <laughs> if we're work, if we're shooting together, then, you know, that's not your, that's not your, you know, we can snap, you know, it, it doesn't happen often, but sure, you can snap it. You can snap at one another, or, or, or <laughs> an amends might need to be made after you know after the after the shoot's <laughs> over. And we have a five year old, so that can that that causes some issues. We always have to find if we're working together. Um, then we always have to find a place to put our child. Right. You know. Yeah. I um, love it. Business business wise, she's way more savvy than me, so I kind of leave the, the any any of the accounting and all that stuff. Uh, she's mostly in charge of and then the phone calls and the schmoozing and all that stuff. I'm, I'm kind of, I kind of, I, I do that. I take that part of the business. Sounds like way more upside than down, Josh. And, uh, just like this, just like this podcast, just like this conversation, way more upside than down for sure. I had a great time. Um, you're, you're, you're a brilliant storyteller and, uh, I wish you nothing but luck going forward. I know you don't need it, but I'll wish it uh, anyway. Uh, I need it. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope we get to, to see uh, each other face to face soon and uh, definitely do a round two. Yeah, man. I'd be honored. Thanks for All having right. me. Anytime. Take care. Take care. Peace. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.bonsai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative and the show will pop right up. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click contribute. Contributions start at only $5 monthly. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. You can follow Nick on Twitter at Nicholas Bugs 
And you can follow me, Chris, on Twitter at Flame in Your Heart. That's F L A M E I N U R H E A R T. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and advisory production. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening. Listening.